Lane's pop culture podcast, The Thrill, for the week of February 14th. On this week's show, how fresh is fresh off the boat? There's been a lot of buzz about the ABC sitcom and its portrayal of an Asian-American family. What does it say about race representation? Too Fast, Too Mockingbird, we bring in McLean's book guru, Brian Bethune, to help us decide whether or not the To Kill a Mockingbird sequel is something we should scout out. And because it's Valentine's Day, we'll talk to you about our favorite pop culture romances. What works, what doesn't, and why. There'll be love stories. Baby, just say yes. I'm Adrian Lee, and I'm a digital editor who writes about arts and music. And I'm here with... I'm a title, and I'm a columnist. And over to my left... Hi, I'm Julia De Laurentiis Johnson, and I'm the editorial assistant. So the three of us are doing this podcast because uh, the three of us consume a lot of pop culture. We talk about it quite a lot with each other, and we're even lucky enough to write about it from time to time. We like thinking about it, exploring its meaning, getting to the bottom of it. Nothing in pop culture, we think, is too base or empty to mean absolutely nothing. And so we thought maybe other people want to join in the conversations we're having, and maybe we'll shed some new light or opinions on the ones we know you're having too. So every week we're going to be right here in the glitzy and ancient wonder that is the Rogers Backup Studio to jam on and tease out some of the hottest pop culture topics. And we're calling this The Thrill not just because we're thrilled to be here with you, and not just because the best kind of art is thrilling in its own way, but also because honestly, I'm pretty into silly wordplay and I wanted something that rhymes with On the Hill, our politics podcast, which you should also check out. Either way, we really hope you'll join us. Exciting, right? Well, then let's get to it. Last week, ABC released a sitcom called Fresh Off the Boat. It's based off of Chef Eddie Huang's best-selling memoir about growing up as a hip-hop-loving kid in suburban Orlando. It's the latest series celebrating diversity from ABC, on the heels of Modern Family and the newish Blackish. And it's a big deal, mostly because it's the first show to portray an Asian-American family since the awful 1994 show All-American Girl from Margaret Cho. Before we get into the importance of this show and how it deals with race, I wanted to ask you guys, what did you think of the show, just as a sitcom? I thought the show was really bad. Horrible. Uh. And I was really disappointed because I had read so much about Eddie Huang and I was really excited to see it. Um, But it was just sort of stale and it seemed like a series of really obvious jokes. Um, You know, I I think it kind of also suffers from, from something that modern family suffers from, which is really precocious kids who have the vocabulary of like Lena Dunham and it doesn't make any sense. I don't know if you guys found that to be true. Julia? I agree with Emma insofar as like the structure of the show wasn't really very revolutionary. It was really like kind of that old sitcom, all those old sitcom tropes we're really used to, like the, the cheesy but enthusiastic dad and like the stern but lovable mom. Like that part wasn't different, but it's the content that's that's revolutionary, not the structure. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, obviously laying my biases, uh, my biases out there. I am a Chinese person, uh, so I got to. Dis- I, I really disagree with you. I sort of went into the show kind of expecting that it wasn't going to be very good. I had watched uh, All American Girl and kind of had set my expectations pretty low and sort of thought, you know, I'm going to have to force some laughs probably. But I thought, you know, those first two episodes uh, especially were really good. I thought that as a sitcom, uh, you know, it's never going to be a revolutionary thing. The sitcom is not really a medium that is designed for revolution. Um, but I did. I, I thought the jokes were genuinely funny. I thought the characters uh, were more interesting than I thought they were going to be. I think yes, there's the, the the tropes of the hardworking dad and you know the precocious kids as well. But I don't know. I thought there was it was there were a lot of genuine funny jokes. I I don't want, I don't want to come off as being really harsh and really unfair. I understand. Like I get that the content of the show, and I would say it is revolutionary. It's just that the way they went about. 
um, making some of these jokes, especially I think is a common experience, and I've witnessed it as a kid in a classroom or in a in a lunch cafeteria where somebody brings in an ethnic lunch, and then the kids with the lunchables make fun of that lunch or say like, "Ew, that smells really gross." Usually, that happens in a more subtle way where somebody makes a, a you know an offhand remark. Every kind of instance of of these sort of racial microaggressions on the show are treated as major events, and they're sort of blown. They're almost cartoonish. I thought it could have. I thought they sort of hit you over the head when it would have been much funnier if things had been a little bit more subtle. I think that's probably a, a product of the fact that it's a network television show, and network television shows are always more obvious than others. But I think that there is uh, on that. Like I like the casual racism, the, the way that they address that in the. In the show, like there's um, a climactic scene in the first episode when this school kid hurls this like blatant racial slur at Eddie and everyone like gasps and the audience does too because you know it's like not the right thing to do. Yo, man, what you doing? Get used to it. You're the one at the bottom now. No, I'm not. Yeah, you are. It's my turn, chink. But there are some smaller moments like when the um, the beehive of suburban moms, white moms, meet Eddie's mom for the first time and they find out her name is Jessica and they say, oh, I thought it was going to be more exotic. And it's small things like that, even though that it was a little ham-fisted, they were, they were trying to draw lines. And I appreciated this around the fact that, as you say, like there's microaggressions, micro-racism, and it's like the, was that racism kind of racism? The concern is that it's the same joke over and over again. Yeah. And I think... But know, that's like how sitcom comedy works. Mm-hmm. And that... Um, you know, there's going to be these these mishaps that occur, and that's funny, and I get that. But I worry that there's not so much there in terms of the actual content and the actual relationships between the people that will carry the show further than this one joke. But to pick up on what Julia was saying, like I I would agree with Julia. I mean, that is the that is how mainstream network comedies work. Uh, there is an A story, there is a B story, there is a rise in action, and everything's fine at the end of it. Um, but I mean, your point touches on what we should probably talk about, which is the representation of race here. And and for me, you know, I wrote I wrote this piece on McLean's.ca about the fact that this was the first um, the first Asian family that, that was on network TV, and. For me, as a Chinese person, there has been there's a long history of, you know, kind of pseudo subtle inherent racism. And there's been a very short history of accurate or even fair or even like just good uh, representation of of Chinese people or Asians. Um, And so I went into this sort of nervous on that front. Um, I myself liked the the part, uh, you know, the first episode where where the the kid, you know, hurls that epithet at him. Uh, It's sort of handled really quickly. And I think that that is okay for me because I didn't feel like it was a big moment after all. I thought there was there was it was momentous, but it wasn't this thing that they harped on a lot. It was resolved basically in the next scene. Um, And I don't need more out of my sitcoms. I kind of want to watch the show be funny, not need to be a revolution. And that in itself would be a revolution if this could if this show could just be good on its own. Right. That would be amazing for me. Uh, unfortunately, the show kind of has to do more to be seen as just good. Um, right. And- but I think one of the important things the, about this show is that it's it's new in, so far as that, like they've never had an Asian-American family sitcom mm-hmm. before. That's new. So everybody's looking at it. to It has to be perfect because it's the shot to be the revolution. But it just has to be the first one. That's mm-hmm. all. It doesn't have to solve all the problems or win a lot of awards. It just has to normalize, start to normalize stuff by just just by virtue of existing. Yeah, it, that's what I guess I mean by race represent by fair race representation. Just you know, if it's just people who yep. happen to be Asian and are funny, 
that's what the show is to me. Um, there are obviously parts of it that that do make me nervous. Uh, we talked about the the white characters. In some ways, they're almost buffoonish, and I kind of don't love that because I felt you know that that them being such an obvious, painfully obvious foil to the Asian characters as heroes made it a little difficult for me to believe that those things really happened, or for me to believe that that's genuinely funny because it's rooted in some reality. Um, so in that way, I I didn't I didn't love the the portrayal, I guess, of the white characters, which I guess is weird. I didn't see that coming when I started right. watching the show. This story, though, it's not it's not just a story about Asian Americans, but it's also large more broadly a story about immigrants mm-hmm. and Emma brought up this this scene that happens in the first episode where Eddie brings um, his mom makes some Chinese food for lunch and he brings it to, to school and then he's like he's nervous about where to sit and then he becomes friends with the cool kid who looks like a tiny Zach Morris because they like bond over Biggie Smalls and then he opens up this noodles and they're like yuck it smells get away so my cousin told me about B.I.G. when I went to visit him last summer and he oh what is that gross it's Chinese food my mom made get it out of here oh my god Ying Ming's eating worms. <laughs> my, my mother came um, from Italy when she was eight or nine. So it was like in the eight, early 50s and uh, early 60s. And I remember her telling me that she, her mother used to make her big paninis like with like veal and tomato sauce. And she used to get crazy made fun of. She would eat her lunch in the bathroom stall. And she begged her mother to buy her bologna and like thin white bread. And I could like see the the recognition there. I was like, oh, yeah, that reminds me of mom told me stories like that. So that story kind of seems to be just like an immigrant story. Mm-hmm. So I, I like that it was layered in that way, that it's it's very, very specific about Chinese Americans, but also just about immigrants and trying to fit in yeah. in all these tiny ways. Yeah, no, I, I didn't want to come off like I, I said earlier that I thought it was horrible. I, I take <laughs> that back. I don't think it's horrible. I was just as to what you were saying, Adrian, I do I did find that, that some of the treatment of the other characters as a foil was kind of cartoonish and buffoonish, and I just think it would be much funnier and much more real if they just toned that down a little bit. Yeah, I think that's by virtue of the fact that it's a network sitcom. I don't know that that's about race or revolution. True. There's lots of network sitcoms that aren't as outlandish. As ham-fisted? Yeah. We were talking about Modern Family. Mm-hmm. It gets like that sometimes, but it's not that. But you have to remember also the show's in its infancy. There's only three episodes. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, I didn't think that, but I just, I'm curious to know, like, what did you think about the acting? In what way? Parents. Oh, you mean the accents specifically? Yeah, nope. and like, did you think they were just, they were funny? Like, I thought the kids were much better than the parents. Uh, yeah, the, the youngest kid, I think, in that show is amazing, yeah. is a yes. revelation, and obviously, like, they wrote in the immediate. Well. I thought the accents were fine. Uh, obviously, people are picking at it to be like, oh, you know, do these accents need to exist? They're not even really his accents. The dad is not Chinese uh, by actual origin. Right, um, he's Korean, right? That's right. So, but, but, uh, no, for me, that's just authentic. Uh, you know, though the accents may not be a hundred percent, I don't mind that. I mean, it would be weirder for me if they went on there with completely Americanized accents, despite portraying people that moved, uh, to America, you know, only recently. Um, so that doesn't trouble me in any way. And on the point again, on sort of fair representation of Asian Americans, um, people don't really aren't really aware that there hasn't really been a, an Asian lead, romantic lead, uh, in a whole lot of different things. So, for instance, John Cho, a, a Korean-American who was recently cast uh, as the romantic lead in Selfie, which is this sort of uh, modern take on Pygmalion, um, there was a big talk about that because he was the romantic lead, and it was great. And then they canceled the show halfway through, and he never and nothing ever happened. And, you know, in Romeo Must Die, uh, Jet Li was supposed to get with Aaliyah, um, which is sort of how the end of Romeo and Juliet is supposed to go. Uh, and apparently it... Uh, 
uh, tested really poorly with audience and they scrapped the whole thing. Um, it, it's just it, it's good to see, you know, on, sort of as an Amer- Asian American family or in, as an Asian American man and that kind of thing. It's really interesting and really good and empowering in a way to see yourself portrayed in unlimited possibilities. And you should check out Adrian's story about Fresh Off the Boat on mcleans.ca right now. Last week, American author Harper Lee made waves with her announcement that, at age 88, she was going to release a sequel to her debut and only book, To Kill a Mockingbird. And mocking is right. Critics suggested that the new book, Go Set a Watchman, is only happening because of pressure from Harper Lee's lawyer. Uh, to talk about the book, we brought in resident McLean's books genius, Brian Bethune, to help us figure out whether the new book will be for the birds. Thanks for joining us, Brian. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Um, so tell me, I mean, what are we supposed to think about this whole controversy, this whole this book that's coming out? Well, two things. The one that's bigger in the background is um, why do we revere the original one so much? But about what's been happening in the last week, at least the uh, surprise a minute uh, pace has slowed down. But until Harper Lee herself talks, preferably on uh, film, but I mean on camera, but at least to the press herself, no one's going to be entirely sure what's going on here. As one American novelist who didn't want his name out because it's his publisher too, said there's a whole lot of voodoo in this and uh, he thinks it's maybe 50-50 it'll ever see the light of day. You just talked about whether or not why we should revere this book. Why do we revere this book? We think it is good in every sense of that word. Uh, And those two things reinforce each other. We think it's a really great novel and it teaches the right racial lesson. And if you thought it just did the right racial lesson, you might think it was a tract and not a very good novel. Or it's a really good novel but it doesn't have the right race uh, rationale. Isn't there a difference, though, between a good kid's novel and a good novel? Well, we also think it's an adult novel. People don't recognize it. Flannery O'Connor was saying from the very beginning that it's a kid's book and people don't recognize that. And we're still holding on to the idea it's not. I don't know if they are, though. I feel like kids read it and, and I think of it as a kid's book. I feel like kids' books can be more morally simplistic. We give it to children to read and we give it to... Um, well, to humans then at a point when they bond most intensely with stories. Read The Lord of the Rings when you're 16 and you'll think it's the greatest piece of literature for the rest of your life. So that, we, we know that in one sense, but on the other sense, we don't want it to get a new light cast on it. And this new book will do that. So I'm real fond of this book. I read it last year after not reading it since high school. And to me, it still holds up well enough. But I'm aware of his faults. And Brian talks about them a little bit in his story, like the white man savior rhetoric and the classism. But I see the nuances better now, like both the good ones and the bad ones. And I think that's simply by virtue of the fact that I know more about the world now than I did when I was 16. So I can be both, you know, aware and also forgive the book and the author for historical limitations. And I think that might be true of other people who read it. Oh, yeah, I think we're going to go overboard on it. Uh, just because, well, who can expect her to have been uh, up-to-date in progressive thinking on race relations in 1960? Right. Why should she be? It was 1960. Uh, and so we're going to go overboard, and uh, as Malcolm Gladwell already has in The New Yorker five years ago, uh, condemning her Southern liberalism, what would he prefer, that she was some sort of arch-racist? Right. I mean, I th- it's just going to make it look like a live book for a change in the way that it is an icon now. And that's what the people who care most about it are worried about. Could this ruin the, the legacy of that book? 
I don't think so in the end. It's going to cause a, a, a huge problem at first and maybe uh, trash Harper Lee's legacy. Because you have to think, if this thing is genuine, and I, I have no reason to think it's not, mm. it is the book from which the best parts have already been strip mined. So it's hardly going to be as good or could be as good. And it's also going to, she's distanced in this book. Anything she says in there that you don't like, you can say, well, it came from the 1930s not from 1960. But now she's writing about the South in the era of Bull Connor and Rosa Parks. And what did she really think what was going on? Mm. How much of an icon of political liberalism is she? For the listeners who haven't read your story yet, uh, talk about a bit about the, the strip mining of uh, you know this book for To Kill a Mockingbird. This is the first book she ever wrote. And that calmed a lot of fears right away because a lot of people, when they heard, oh, oh, second novel from Harper Lee, she wrote it last year and she's 88. Uh, how good's it going to be? So she wrote this even before To Kill a Mockingbird, sent it in, and some editors said, you know, the best parts are the kids' flashbacks. And this whole, the discovery of this thing fixes one of the problems in the narration that people never understood. Scout is six to nine all the way through a, a mockingbird, but occasionally talks as though she's 30 and looking backwards. Well, because she was in the original. Mm. And uh, so those flashbacks of Scouts of her childhood, um, the editor didn't like the present day story told Lee to go back and uh, rewrite it from the kid's point of view. Yeah, if anything, that makes me more nervous. That makes me feel like that this is like very literally bee cuts from, from yeah, the other thing. Yeah, it's what's left over after you took off the good stuff, theoretically, but that's a judgment then. Now Harper Collins is saying, uh, it's a great story about uh, a grown-up daughter and her elderly father. Mm-hmm. But then what's the upside, right? So, I mean, obviously there's, there's risks to Harper Lee's legacy. Is there really upside here? Let's say, you know, let's... Let's say hypothetically, this is going to be a classic, that this is going to be a classic book. Is there even upside to, to having a second classic for someone so late in her own career, someone who's so established? I don't so think there's any upside for her at mm-hmm. all. Uh, certainly not financially. The New York Times calculated her royalty income at $1.7 million every six months mm. just out of the first book. She doesn't need the second book to, uh, you know, to see her through. So I think it would be a lot better if, uh, you know, after her death, uh, people were allowed to publish her papers and things. And then she wouldn't have to hear what she's going to have to hear. Mm-hmm. And talking about, again, about the controversy, you know, she allegedly came out and said that she was humiliated about the fact that people thought that, that this was her lawyers. people doubted her cognitive capacity. <laughs> That's right. Just because all of a sudden this thing is found. And that is difficult to believe, that this thing was just found. It must have been known to exist and not have been something she was interested in or influential people like her older sister who just died in November uh, argued against it. Now the new influential person is arguing for it and it does get people worried. Mm-hmm. And so we have conjecture. We have speculation. What do you think? Like, Is, this, is, is she for real? Is, do you think that this is uh, something she definitely wants to put out? <laughs> I don't know. Her, and I have no <laughs> guess at all. You got to guess. I have no, no <laughs> guess at all whether she wants to put this uh, out or not. She's been resistant to anything to compare to uh, Kill a Mockingbird. Obviously, that's been worried her enough that she never wrote again. I mean, again, this is written beforehand. Right, but it's so hard to tell because she's so famous for being a recluse and for being so shy. And despite this controversy of us being unsure if she wants it published, all of the statements have come through her lawyer which would be suspect anyway, but because she's such a recluse, it doesn't seem that out of the ordinary for her not to speak herself. And in this case... In this case, it's the simplest way to put things to uh, to bed, right? It's just, uh, I mean, if she's um, that interested in what's going on, why not? Yeah. You hear us, Harper Lee? You got to come out. You got to come out and say <laughs> it. 
Well, you can check out what Brian Bethune has to say about Ghost Set of Watchmen in the latest issue of McLean's. And it's up on McLean's.ca and Next Issue now. And if you want to set a watch for the book, it comes out on July 14th. Lastly, we're starting our podcast the day before Valentine's Day, which is totally because we love you all very, very much, and not at all because it was a pure coincidence. So we decided this is a great opportunity to talk about love stories in pop culture, since love is such a mainstay trope of narratives in TV, in books, in movies, and in music. So Julia, let me ask you first, what is a good love story for you in pop culture? I think that a good love story in pop culture is no different than a good love story in real life. And actually, I think it's kind of essential that it reflects reality when it's at its very best. And that's different for everybody about what that means. But to me, that means stories that are about loyalty, building a two-person empire, working together when stuff is hard. I think that that's pretty romantic. So a recent example is the third movie in the Richard Linklater trilogy, the Before Sunrise, Before Sunset uh, movies. And the first two of those movies are about what um, Ethan Hawke and Julie Dapley's relationship um, could be like. It's about pining and fantasy. But the third one, Before Midnight, is what it's actually like. They've been they've lived together for at least a decade, I think it is, and they have two kids, they're on vacation in Greece. But they're still happy, but they still have to deal with like the minutiae of life, and there's like a little fighting in between. And so now they're living out their love story as opposed to just dreaming about what it might be. And it's not always pretty, but it's real, and, and I think that's romantic. Um, another example is a book called The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion. She wrote it in 2005 after her husband of nearly 40 years died of a heart attack. And the, the whole book is about her um, coming to grips with the fact that the this this life that they built over the course of many years is just over in an instant. And she's struggling on how to figure out who she is now that this incredibly important part of her life is gone, this this man that she built a life with. And I will end my examples with Countdown by Beyonce, a song from her 2011 album, Horror. She talks about how she's still in love with Jay-Z and how they still try to challenge each other. They're still dedicated to keeping their relationship strong. And it's recorded eight years after uh, Crazy in Love, their Crazy in Love duet, which is all about like the obsession of new love. And in Countdown, it's, she's got the theme that's more like, hey, this, you see this we got going on? Still awesome. Better even. And I think that's pretty romantic. Great. <laughs> what, you don't believe in love? What what a thing to say on the eve of Valentine's Day. Not the same five years later. They're different. I know. In a good way. I'm not saying they're they're the same. I'm just saying that she's saying they're different and getting better. That's her point. There you go. All right, Emma, what are your pop culture love stories? Well, my answer is going to be a lot less sophisticated than Julie's, (laughs) unfortunately. Um, I think that the ideal love story in pop culture is the adolescent love story, which includes the... Deflowering scene. Oh boy. Where... <laughs> well, this is what I mean. I don't. I can't recall a love story that I've seen since I've been an adult that has really uh, resonated with me. The only love stories I could think of that make me feel something are, are the ones that I watched when I was a preteen. Or wow. I feel entirely opposite to that. <laughs> My favorite is Cruel Intentions, where Reese Witherspoon and Ryan Philippe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think Philippe. Ryan. Philippe. 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 Um, they're uh, from two different worlds. She is uh, a virgin from, I think, the 
She's from the world of Virgin. Uh, and he is Virginia. A pompous um, society man, young man. And I think that, that that film sort of captures the perfect virginity scene, which you see in a lot of teen movies, where you have, um, I don't know if I'm going to be too graphic here, but you have, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the man sort of thrusts once, Mm. Um, indicating that something has broken. Oh boy! And sure. Then the woman, the, her expectations. The girl, the girl makes a sort of noise like, and then this is the most important part where the guy says, "Are you okay?" And then sure, continue. checking in. And yeah. So I don't know. I I know this was sort of gave me some really unrealistic expectations for what lay ahead. But that to me is just. That is love. That's amazing to me that that's what you relate to the most. <laughs> well, I don't know how I follow everything that we just heard there, but um, but when uh, when we started thinking about um, you know pop culture love stories, I sort of thought about the actual uh, you know mechanisms behind creating a good pop culture love story, uh, and it got me thinking about you know a honeymoon stage in love stories and how um, you know young love is more essential and more passionate and more interesting than comfortable love. And that, I think, is true, uh, obviously, of love. And I think of love stories, too. So a lot of the stuff that resonates most with me is some of that more the passionate, the you know immediate. Um, and I started thinking about you know television, for instance, um, and you know one of the quote unquote great uh, couples of all time from television is Jim and Pam from The Office. Uh, and I thought that that one actually timed itself really poorly. And what I mean by that is um, it spent, you know, the first, I'd say, third building up this, like, really beautiful romance between Jim and Pam, who are workers together in a paper company. They, you know, one leaves, one comes back. They eventually get together over the course of a friendship that blossoms into a romance. And it's this beautiful thing. But then the show has to continue for another, you know, five, six seasons. Um, that's a long time to sustain a televised romance that, you know, audiences are participating in. Um, we have to commit as much to that love as they have to commit to each other. And that's a tricky thing to do. Um, and for me, that's sort of why Jim and Pam aren't that great a couple, this amazing, beautiful love story, because there's so much afterward where they're just together. And that's kind of boring. And the show, to its credit, actually knew this. Uh, the Office, the last season, was sort of revolved around the idea of Jim and Pam, um, whether or not they're actually going to stay together. And I thought that was an interesting tactic to take. Um, but again, not, not, a, not a perfect love story for me. I just think that time plus love makes a worse love story. Whereas I think... I think that's only true for people who observe it for, and, and visually. Like, you mm, talk about television sure. and movies, but if you can write about it... Or if you can write a song that makes you think, like, reminds you of how it might have felt for you. I think there's a difference between something you can think in your mind and something you look at. Yeah, certainly. I mean, this is definitely a visual thing. And, and the benefit of music or books is that you can sort of leap, uh, you know, leap time, basically, from one sentence right. or one phrase to another. So, I, I know, very specifically, I'm talking about the mechanics of, of how you tell a love story on TV. And, and that, that is a tricky thing right. to do. Um, I think Parks and Recreation does it well. I think uh, The Office doesn't as much. I think this is going to be controversial to a lot of my friends who also love The West Wing. Uh, I think that the central couple, Josh and Donna... Not a great love story for the same, but for the opposite reason, where you spend so much time building up to it. Wait, wait, why aren't they a great love story? So they, it took them seven years to get together, and you only see them really together in the last five episodes of the thing. And after a certain point, you're just yelling at the TV, just get on with it. Right. Um, So it's kind of the opposite of the problem with Jim and Pam. Um, And uh, yeah, just it doesn't really quite work for me. And I think it's all about timing for me. That's also most not the the Jim and Pam story Mm -hmm. was all 
also a lot of like, will they, won't they, or when will they? Not about when they do. When they do, as you say, we lose interest. And it's kind of like life, you know, like when you have a new crush on somebody, you first start to date about them, your friends want all the details. But once you guys have like settled and are just in love as opposed to falling in love, the interest, the external interest ends. Yeah, boring. But I think, though, that that sort of love story works on a show like The Office or Parks and Recreation because you're not watching that show for the love story. Like in any traditional romance, even a romantic comedy, it has to end when they get together because what more is there to know if that's what you want to see and we want to see but that's they're going to end up together. But with The Office, that's sort of a, it's not that their relationship is an afterthought, mm-hmm. but it's a, the right, but I think that's also discussing that the payoff is when they finally get together, they finally make it work, right. and they and they live happily ever after. But I think for me, the payoff is more about how they make it work and that they continue to try to make it work. Mm-hmm. And and I think that there are things that do them that quite interestingly. I just think it's harder to do it. Um, and and the ones you suggested, I think that are, those are really great examples of them. Um, yeah. I will say this though, I don't think Romeo and Juliet is romantic at all. What? I don't think it's really interesting for two teenagers to be in love for three days and be dramatic that's every teenager and i think that the notebook for example is much more romantic because they like live their lives together and it's hard like if they they struggle it's not always a happy love story for them either but they're together at the end and like they're very devoted to each other and that's kind of a a very saccharine uh, dementia portrayal yes well that's a very specific Fair enough. You have to suspend your disbelief, your belief on science for some of it and health. But I think it's a lot more romantic than Romeo and Juliet because it takes time and it's hard that that love story spans like 50 years. Romeo and Juliet love story spans three days. I feel like you just like a more sophisticated, grown up romance. I guess so. Whereas, What's wrong with that? People compromise and. I just think truth, hard things are more interesting than easy things. Isn't life hard enough? But. <laughs> Sage words, Emma title. Sage words. What about you? We want to hear from our listeners. What are your favorite love stories? Tweet at McLean's Mag and let us know. And that's it for this week. Find new episodes every Friday at McLean's.ca and, hopefully very soon, on iTunes. Drop us a comment on the website to tell us what we should talk about or tell us how we're doing. Our theme song is by Young Clancy. You can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma Rose Title. You can follow Julia on Twitter at Julia Del J. J is in the letter. And you can follow me on Twitter at Adrian K. Lee. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>